Good morning, and uh, let me ask you one question. How did you get here? All right. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe we're in a dream. Uh, anyways, my name is Morgan. So glad that you're here this morning. Uh, if you don't know Inception, you should get to know it back in 2010. It uh, grossed $828 million, So, you know, not a bad tip. You can buy a decent car with that one. And uh, as we just watched the iconic uh, World Cafe dream scene, Di- DiCaprio's character Cobb orients Ariadne, the young but gifted architectural student, to the nearly unlimited creative opportunity of dream design. Right, uh, her uh, opportunity there to create with no bounds, and uh, the idea is, of course, he take he and his team take people into inception to plant some into something an idea into someone's subconscious through inception. And you know, in my opinion, this is a classic favorite movie of mine. And uh, some of the brilliance of it for me is how the intrigue and mystery, the universal resonation with dreams, right, that uh, the director was able to take us in to, and yet explains it or expands the idea of what could be, right? That's some of the beauty of the shifts, the paradigm of what's possible, of what's reality. That's some of the themes of Inception. And I would argue that when Jesus told parables, that when he took people into parables, in contrast to a sci-fi book or movie or novel, uh, Jesus was inviting people to expand into a new paradigm. He was inviting a new way of thinking and interacting with the world as he invited people into the parables. Uh, And and what he was trying to teach is that his kingdom, this amazing reality, was coming to bear in the world. And he would at times use parables to expose people to that reality. And so our hope is that as we examine some further parables, we we did last week as well, uh, that we would continue to go on this adventure with our hearts, with our minds, with our thoughts into a new paradigm ship, figuring out what Jesus is up to and how we align our lives with that. Uh, If you were here with us last week, you heard Patrick tell us that parables are simply stories from daily life that teach us spiritual and moral truth. Parables begin with everyday simple stories, right? They start there, and yet they have layers and layers of meaning. I'm reminded of Shrek, where Shrek says, ogres are like onions. And Duncan says, they stink? He says, no, they have layers, right? There's layers of meaning here. Parables are dividing lines. They help expose our hearts, right? Jesus said that they will expose our hearts. Uh, They will, last week we heard the parable of the four soils, all right? These four different soils. And he ends that teaching by saying, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And what he's doing with that is not talking about audible listening, right? He is talking about something deeper. There is a heart posture that he's trying to say parables will expose that. And so parables uh, are essentially if your heart is calloused towards God, towards spiritual truth, towards the ways of the kingdom, uh, parables might bore you. They might annoy you. They might frustrate you. And yet, if you're open and seeking spiritual truth, if you are open to what God is up to, the parables will intrigue you. They will draw you in. They will take you to a new place. They will begin to capture your imaginations. And so, in short, parables both reveal and they also conceal. Now, so my hope with us as we dive into two more parables of the kingdom is that we would have those ears to hear. 
So if you've got a Bible in the backs of those pews, you can open up to Mark chapter 4. We're going to have words on the screen as well. Uh, just to remind us, Mark was a second-hand witness to the life of Jesus. He gets a lot of his narrative from uh, one of Jesus' closest friends on earth, which was Peter. That's kind of his main buddy there that, that he crafted his narrative off of. All right, so here we go. We're going to Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 26. Jesus said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like, or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. All right. So did anyone here grow up on a farm or in a rural setting of any sort? Anyone? A couple. Okay, sweet. All right, so we've got some background. I was kind of expecting not many, so that's great. Uh, some of us might be at a disadvantage if you did not have that setting like myself, um, and some of you might have a little bit more understanding with what Jesus says here. Uh, but what I want to make sure is at, in Jesus' day, his everyday audience really would have got this, right? It starts with a simple story, and for some of us, we might have to do a little bit more work, so we're going to do a little bit more work together. Um, so what we see clearly, though, at the beginning of both these parables is this statement that is this. This is what the kingdom of God is like, or what shall we say the kingdom of God is like, right? Jesus is saying the same thing. He is linking them together. In both instances, the parable is something that invites us into that world of the kingdom, right? This different world breaking in, this paradigm shift. And uh, the kingdom language might be very strange to you. You might be saying, wait a minute, like I really don't know what that means. It sounds nice and good, but what does that mean? And, and a reminder is that the kingdom of God is when what God wants done is actually done. Right? It's the rule and the reign of God. It's when God's activity is taking place. And so the kingdom of God are, are things like this. When healing and forgiveness is crashing into someone's life. Right, That's part of the kingdom. When beauty and justice is taking place, that would be kingdom. When God is being honored and glorified, that is kingdom. When freedom for oppression or those who are oppressed is happening, that's a bit of the kingdom. Does that make sense? So what God wants done is actually being done. That is when the kingdom is taking place. And so in the person, in the life, in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus proclaimed that this kingdom is breaking in now through him and through his ways and through his works, right? So Jesus brings that kingdom to bear, a beginning foretaste of it, if you will, but yet not the fullness of it, right? We know there's tons of brokenness. And these kingdom parables, though, Jesus is saying, this is what it looks like. This is what it feels like to see my kingdom come to bear on this earth. And so what I want to do with these two parables here is just to look at two lenses. What are two lenses that might orient us towards his kingdom? And so I want to talk about waiting. And I want to talk about fruition or exponential growth. All right, so we're going to first begin with the lens of waiting. If you could go to the next slide for me, Griffin. All right, waiting. Now, uh, is there anything worse than waiting? 
Well, according to our culture, not a whole lot, all right? It's probably suffering, but waiting tends to be a part of that suffering, okay? So I, I had meant to, to show you this ancient uh, item, but I'm just going to tell you about it. Uh, it's my wife's phone, okay? And it's the iPhone 5. Can everyone say, ooh, iPhone 5, yes. Does anyone remember when that came out, anyone? 2012. Okay, do we have an iPhone 5 in the back? Yes, Carson, awesome. So iPhone 5s are a little bit ancient in the tech world, okay? So my wife, let me tell you, she is totally fine with her iPhone 5. Like, she is happy, she is secure, it does everything she wants it to, uh, she even resists most ep upgrade offers, I do not know why, but she uh, says, hey, this does just fine for me. For me, I can't stand her phone, okay, it bothers me, okay, and every once in a while I'll have to use her phone, let's say I'm helping her with like an upgrade, or at times we'll be maybe cooking together and she'll hand me the phone and say, hey, what's the next thing on the recipe, and I'm scrolling through or whatever, right, so there's a few random instances where I will interact with the iPhone 5, and let me tell you, it is slow. Man, like, and when I say slow, it means it takes like six seconds to pull up, you know, whatever website I need, rather than the one second or less that my phone takes to open it up. And in these moments, in these six seconds, it feels like my insides are going to explode. All right, like I cannot handle how long it has taken. And I feel like I'm wasting my time, right? I'm like, ah, I can't find what I need to find. And, and so I really want her uh, to, to get an upgrade, but she won't do it. Now, uh, again, another maybe cultural expression of our challenge in waiting. Uh, have you ever had challenges in waiting while you drive? right, while you drive. Uh, let's say you are that second card behind the first car in the red light, right, and it turns green. Now, I want to ask the question, how long internally are you starting to, like, get bothered, blood pressure rising, if that car doesn't move? Like, how long? Yeah, here you go, two seconds, five seconds, and now the other one is, how quickly do you honk, right? What's your, like, honkometer when that car is not moving, right? That's a problem. Have you ever also had someone cut you off? And the worst part is they'll speed up to cut off, they'll come up in front of you, and then slow down that five or so miles an hour that they took to speed up to get in front of you, right? Ooh, like, that's a problem for me, okay? That one really bothers me. Or maybe just one last driving expression is when you see that red light in the distance, right? You're on normal streets. You see the red light, and it turns. Like, let's say it's green, it goes yellow, then red, and you're already counting. Okay, are there nine cars in my lane? There's six in that one. Like, you're going left, you're going in the other lane, right? These are all, yes, somewhat silly examples of waiting, but real parts of daily life. But I, I want to ask maybe a much deeper question as we examine waiting. Like, like, what happens in the real stuff? You know, the stress and anxiety of waiting for some lab results that were not your desires, it's doctor's orders because something, you know, there's a spot on your back. What about the waiting to graduate? The waiting for a career or a job, something that you were desiring? What about the waiting for marriage or kids? Or, or simply that gut-level question, I love uh, author and, and scholar N.T. Wright asks, which is the simple gut-level question that we all ask at times, why doesn't God do something? Tragedy, the horrific accidents, the bullies. Like, why doesn't God just step in and stop it all? Like, these are the heavier forms of waiting. And waiting is a tough part of life. Like, it's hard. Uh, and, and so what we want to see in this parable, though, for sure, is that one reminder of Jesus' parable is the reality of God's kingdom and the fact that it doesn't operate on our timetable. 
Like there is a lens of waiting in these parables. Let's look at it. In verse 26 and 27, there's this man who is scattering seed, right? And this man waits night and day for the seeds to grow. And other than the occasional watering, like he doesn't do much, right? And he's even, it's kind of a profound mystery. There's some watering, but, but there's mostly resting and eating and sleeping and putting around in, in the field as though he can do something and make it go faster and more sleeping and night and day, yet it is growing. But there is no mistake that it's growing, and yet the theme, like at least the first part of this parable, is on the waiting. In Jesus' second story, the, the mustard seed, uh, is the theme of waiting is there. It's a little bit more hidden. Uh, this small seed will then turn into a large garden plant, Jesus says. But fascinatingly, mustard seeds actually grow pretty quickly. Okay, they're not a slow-growing plant. They're fast. Uh, it can begin to sprout within days. And so you might think, like, wait a minute, is this the waiting, like the iPhone 5 waiting? I mean, you're, you're badgering about five seconds. Here's the issue, though. Uh, there's actually one, if it's going to get into a large plant, it's going to take some time. So the initial seedling will come up quickly. But if it's going to grow large, it's going to take some time. But even better question in the parable is who's doing the waiting? In this parable, it doesn't talk about the person planting the mustard seed. It actually talks about birds. And the waiter in this one is actually the birds of the air who are waiting for shade. And now that is actually quite an immediate need. Because in the heat of a Palestinian summer, birds need shade. And so there's actually quite a, a deep desire for, for shade quickly. So they better find something else. Or this mustard seed plant better get large so that it, they can find some shade in those branches. And so in both cases... The kingdom of God is certainly growing, but there's this prior thrust of waiting and cultivating uh, because the kingdom of God looks a little differently than you might expect. Now, if you do think we're the only ones who struggle to wait, you should reconsider that. Um, Jesus at this point in his ministry is receiving all these crowds. And a few weeks ago, we even saw that people would go up to 120 miles walking, right? So seven to 10 day journey to go track down Jesus, to go hang out with him, to hear a teaching, to receive a miracle, to see a healing. And, and, and so this is, he, people are having to really go after him. And Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom breaking in and through him and through his ministry. And yet... What begins to happen is people, his followers don't want to wait. And T. Wright, again, says this, Jesus' followers, of course, didn't want to wait. If the kingdom was really present where Jesus was, if it was coming to birth in what he was doing, then they wanted the whole thing at once. They weren't interested in God's timetable. They had one of their own, and they expected God to conform to it. So if here's what I want to ask you. Is there something that you're currently holding on to is there something that you are currently waiting for that you are expecting God to conform to? Is there something that you are expecting God to conform to? Uh, for years of my life, I knew that I had a longing, uh, and even at times a desperate longing for, for a romantic other, for a spouse. Uh, and I would even said at those times, through those years, even to close friends, if they'd ask, hey, how's your life? Right? Like, how's your, like, really, how is your life, right? And, and I probably would have answered something like this. Pretty amazing. Like, I, I feel like I have a good relationship with God. I have some closeness there. Um, I have a great uh, network of friends and family members. Um, but I, I want a girlfriend. I want a wife. Like I would have that big but there after describing a lot of good things. 
And, and I think uh, there's nothing wrong with that desire, right? Like, I think it's actually even a good desire, if you will. Uh, but I would say at the same time, like, in our self-actualization culture, it's a culture that says until all your desires are fulfilled, and you get to choose them, right? You, you know, that, that's kind of the in expressive individualism. You choose those desires, but whatever they are, oftentimes unrealistic, if you don't have all of them, then our culture says that there's actually something wrong with you, or it's not that you're, there's something wrong, but you aren't fully fulfilled yet. Like you aren't your full self or your best self because you're missing this thing, this thing that you've decided that you desire, and something's still off. And I would have those sorts of thoughts for years. Like I would say that narrative was somehow in me. And I would say lots of the waiting and some of the pains and the sufferings actually were, were stuff that I brought into my own heart and into my own soul, right? Because I'm buying that narrative that there's still something off if I haven't received all that I'm desiring. Does that make sense? So here'd be my hope. It's not to pretend that we don't have these things that we're waiting for. My hope is that we would start to receive the good news of a kingdom that is breaking in regardless of the ways in which your life or my life or our lives aren't yet where we would hope they would be. And so again, is there something you're waiting for? And maybe you've even possibly taken that waiting or that hope and turn it into an expectation that God is not yet conforming to? Like, is there something for you? And let me ask one more thing to do it. Would you take the hard step of naming it? Like, would you name that? Because I think when we name it, we begin to enter the process of grieving a loss. Like, whether it's self-constructed, right, whether we've constructed that thing or not, I believe naming it is one of many steps, but at least a, a good initial step that can launch us into a healing uh, process. Because again, many in Jesus' day, especially his followers, began to think that Jesus was this long-awaited-for Messiah. Like they thought he was the rescuer. He thought they thought he was the healer. But they had this concept of the Messiah that would be a conquering king, that would throw off Rome, that would reestablish Israel, and would start a new era, and kind of reestablish what God wanted to do in and through Israel. And they were simply wrong. Like, like they didn't know who the Messiah, what the Messiah was supposed to be. They had a different conception. And so what Jesus does with these stories, with these parables, is he is planting the seeds in their souls through the parables that the kingdom is surely coming, but you're going to have to wait because that's some of the core reality of the kingdom. And again, my hope is not that you would pretend that you're not waiting for things. It's not to, to disregard that. This is not like a shake the finger like bad dog. Like, why are you waiting, right? It's not any of that at all. My hope in this moment is actually that we'd start to take encouragement and that we would start to even bask and ponder at a savior and a kingdom where the waiting is a core reality of that kingdom. And before you give up waiting, say, great, you're, you're building all this stuff up and there's no answer. You mean I still have to keep waiting? I would want to pose this question. Like, what if Jesus' early followers had got their way? What if the fullness of the kingdom had come then? What would that mean? Well, it would probably mean that, that none of us would have ever been born, right? Uh, that Jesus could have brought that fullness of the kingdom long ago and ushered in the new creation. Uh, and it seems like, at least as far as I can tell in the scripture, I, I don't know if there are new babies once Jesus comes a second time, all right? So with that, here's the good news. We worship a God who is rich in patience, who is full of waiting, so that billions of people 
could actually experience the joy and fullness of relationship with him through Jesus. The waiting of the kingdom is a part of the infinite sovereign plan of a loving God who Jesus makes clear in other parts of scripture that he will come back again. Jesus says he will come back and he will bring that fullness. And that party and that celebration and that spiritual extended family is far larger than it would have been had God and the kingdom not been a waiting type of kingdom. And so my hope is that God's patience and his waiting might encourage you. It's not pretending that, that there isn't some hurt or there aren't some longings in your waiting. I'm not saying that. I'm saying what if there's something to be uh, encouraged by in the waiting and patience of God. Now, a second lens, right? So there's our waiting. It's the lens of growth. It's the lens of fruition, because Jesus concludes both parables, and we see this theme very clearly. So the man scatters seeds, waits night and day. And the most peculiar of things, like it keeps growing. Like it just keeps growing. And it says in the parable, all by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Now, this word soil should tie us, if you were here last week, to those four soils, right? These are the heart postures of people. The kingdom is growing and coming to fruition in the lives and souls of people. The scattered soil hits good soil. That soil begins to produce a crop. And once that kernel has become full, the man who has scattered it then grabs a sickle and starts to harvest that grain, right? This was the purpose of the seed, was to grow and produce fruit, or in this case, grain. Now, in Jesus' second parable, the growth theme is probably even stronger, right? So you have this very, very small seed growing into this very, very large plant, right? Verse 32, yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. And Jesus is just using a simple analogy, something small because something very, very large. And uh, Jesus is near the beginnings of his ministry saying, look, this whole thing is going to start small. Like you'll see, it'll be real small, but it will grow uh, amazingly. And so I wanted to just tell or share some mustard seed stories of this thing called the Jesus movement. Uh, because if you don't know, at the time of Jesus' death and, and his resurrection, uh, there were roughly about 120 people who were still in. All right. When we see in Acts chapter 2, which starts to narrate the, the life of this early movement of Jesus followers, right? there are roughly 120 people gathered in an upper room waiting because Jesus, the resurrected Jesus had told them to do so. They are praying, they are fasting, and they are waiting for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And that happens. And it happens in that moment. And a crowd begins to kind of crowd around outside because weird stuff is happening. And Peter gives this speech, and thousands that day decide to come to faith in Jesus. Now, Rodney Stark, he's one of the most preeminent sociologists of early Christianity. He wrote a great book called The Rise of Early Christianity. And uh, maybe tough to read that subtitle, but I love that subtitle. It says, how the obscure, marginal Jesus movement became the dominant religious force of the Western world in just a few centuries. So what we know looking back is that from roughly 30 A.D., till 330, when Christianity is finally legalized in the Roman Empire, the Jesus movement had turned into millions, and it was more than a 40% growth per decade. So we know that it blew up, and so lots of sociologists, lots of historians go, like, how? 
Like, how did that happen? How did this weird, obscure movement become this major dominant force? And, and sure, there are lots of factors. God performing miracles through his apostles, healings happened, changed lives. Um, Peter's sermon moments happened on occasion, right? But he actually believes that when, when you look at the, the nitty-gritty of like, how did this thing grow exponentially? There were actually some other factors that are even more obscure. And the first one is the role of women. The role of women who are people that were valued and given places of leadership and in a highly patriarchal culture. The practices of divorce, incest, marital infidelity, and polygamy, which at that time were basically all in the hands of men to direct, okay? So they were the ones who had all the power, like women didn't really have the power to even call for a divorce. Does that make sense? So those were rarely practiced in early followers of Jesus and never condoned. Like, we don't live that way, right, in those early followers. Female infanticide, largely practiced and accepted in the Roman Empire, was nowhere to be found in the lives of early Jesus followers. This was a major, major difference, contrast to the surrounding society. Uh, another one would be the example of martyrs. The example of martyrs who are willing to die for their faith, excruciating death in boldness and in confidence that blew away a Greco-Roman world that said, like, why would anyone do such a thing. Uh, listen to this early account. Eusebius is a, a historian of the time, and he describes uh, the story of a guy named Romanus, who was a follower of Jesus from Antioch. He says this, he says, when the judge had informed Romanus that he was to die by flames, with a cheerful countenance and most ardent mind, he received the sentence and was led away. He was then tied to the stake, and when the wood was heaped up about him, and they were kindling on the pile, only waiting the word from the expected emperor, he exclaimed, where then is the fire? Saying this, he was summoned again by the emperor to be subjected to new torture, and therefore had his tongue cut out, which he bore with great fortitude, as he proved his actions to all, showing also that the power of God is always present to aid those who are obliged to bear any hardship for the sake of religion, to lighten their labors, and to strengthen and his story is one that is repeated again and again and again. Early followers of Jesus refused to deny following Jesus and suffered deaths because of it. And the third one. There are many strands of why it blew up, but a third one was family. That the early followers of Jesus acted as spiritual extended family. That they shared lives, that they shared homes in a society of mistrust. And it was amazing news. And this family uh, had truly countercultural and radical practices. Listen to this illustration. Uh, if you don't know, there were two major plagues in those first few hundred years in the Roman Empire. One in AD 165, another in 251. And these plagues lasted for years and they devastated thousands of lives. Even uh, Emperor Marcus Aurelius was one of those who died from the plague. So, so rich, poor, across. I mean, these things are swathing across the Roman Empire. And when plagues struck, pagans fled. Okay? People left. They would abandon even neighbors or friends or family members like, man, that thing is swiping through like, I'm out of here, right? Not Jesus followers. Like, Jesus followers stayed put, and uh, when they did, they would love and serve and meet the tangible needs of those who were dying of different plagues. And some Christians, yes, caught plague themselves and died. 
That did happen, of course. Uh, but many did not. And fascinatingly, food and water and, and shelter and healing prayer saved thousands of lives. And those who often survived through that were cared for by this community, uh, began to follow this Jesus of Nazareth as well, who had inspired such courage, such boldness, such faith to put their lives on the line and to actually care for others. Uh, one of the emperors, Julian, one of Constantine's relatives, when he became empire, he promptly renounced Christianity, and he tried to bring back old-time pagan religion. He realized that the empty rituals of ancient paganism rang hollow in the face of Christian compassion. And he so urged pagan priests to imitate it, all right? And what he told them, he says, these Galileans, he complained, are not only taking care of their own poor, but taking care of ours as well. He said, go do the same thing as them, because maybe we'll, we'll take back against this Christian form. So the Jesus ethic of loving a neighbor as yourself was one of the many Christian influences that turned the Roman Empire upside down, and it catalyzed innumerable growth. And so these are some of those little mustard seed stories. Now, that's a long time ago, right? Uh, God is still at work doing similar things. These mustard seed realities are not stories of just 1,700 years ago. Uh, I want to encourage us who, some of us might be in the room and, and just wondering, like, man, am I the only crazy person? Are we the only crazy people following this Jesus guy? Because, man, it feels like less and less people are following Jesus in this country. And that's true as a whole. But if you think religion belongs to the past, listen to what Harriet Sherwood's article, written out of The Guardian, not, not a Christian or, or a Christian publication. says, why faith is becoming more and more popular. She says that 84% of the world's population identifies with a religious group. Members of this demographic are generally younger, and they actually produce more children than those with no religious affiliation. So the world is actually getting more religious, not less although there are significant geographical variations. And so she describes that the short answer is this. Uh, religion is on the wane in Western Europe and North America. It's basically growing everywhere else. Like it's actually growing quite a bit. In a relatively small portion of the world, it's declining, while most of the globe is growing. And so, yes, here in the States, I would say that we have a skewed perspective. Uh, yes, the largest growing population religiously in our country is called the religious nuns, N-O-N-E, meaning I don't identify as anything, right? It's roughly 22% of our country now, and it keeps growing year after year. Um, and so, yes, we do live in a society that is increasingly post-Christian. All right? So you might find yourself as a follower of Jesus discouraged. But this morning, what I want you to make sure you hear is that the vast majority of the world don't buy the secular narrative. They don't buy that. Um, and if trends remain true, sociologists predict Christianity will continue to grow at about a 34% clip between now and 2060. Um, and that the majority of that growth is in the global south, meaning Africa and Latin America and Southeast Asia, places like that. So if you are feeling, again, that we're the only people following Jesus, no. Like, that's not true at all. And I would want to encourage you uh, to not just isolate yourself with only people who follow Jesus. Like, we actually need uh, to, to hear the narratives of others who believe differently. We are formed as a family, and yet we're a family who go together, who love together, who serve together, and are a hope to a broken and hurting world around us. Part of that global growth that we take part in here at Serve very distinctly is we partner with a group in Southeast Asia that, that is planting churches like crazy, um, and they're truly movemental. 
okay? What I mean by that is even a year ago, a few, three of us were in uh, Southeast Asia together uh, at a conference, helping out, serving, learning from this group. And, and at that point, 25,000 churches had been planted uh, roughly over 19 years. It's already now up to 30,000. In less than a year, 5,000 new church plants in entirely unreached people groups have been planted. And we just got an update. 54 new church planters have gone through their year-long training center. And again, we'll go out and begin planting churches. The average graduate, which we're supporting five of those, um, they plant uh, five churches in five years. Right? So that's something we're a part of. And so we're taking part in a small way in what God is doing in and around the world. So it's unbelievable. God's kingdom continues to grow like a wild mustard seed tree. But finally, I just want to ask one more question or tell one more story. Maybe it's a dream. Maybe it's a hope. What if God wants to do something here? Not just in faraway places, but what if God wants to do something here? What if God wants to birth a disciple-making movement here that can move in and through us as a people? That's what we have given our lives to. Carissa and I and many on our team are saying, man, we want to see a movement of Jesus followers unleashed into the city, beyond the city, uh, to bring spiritual transformation to our community. That is our hope, is that when we gather here, that we celebrate a God who is at work in the here and now. When we gather in small groups in people's homes, that people are getting a little bit of taste of that kingdom. When we are trained in our discipleship huddles to go and learn how to intentionally disciple others, we are being trained to go on that same journey that Jesus' original followers were trained in. Come and follow me and I will make you into fishers of men. And so I want to encourage you, if you have desire to, to even move into that space, of, I want to know how to do that. Like, I want to know how to intentionally disciple others. Voice that. I want to encourage you to write it on a card. I want to encourage you to talk to me afterwards. We want to partner with people who are saying, I want to be discipled so that I can go and intentionally make other disciples because that is how the Jesus movement has been passed again and again and again over 2,000 years. So a next step for us as we land the plane, would you craft a mustard seed prayer with me? Maybe there's something personal for you. Maybe something for your family. Maybe it's something for our church. Maybe it's something for our city. What is something small and important that you are asking God to multiply? that you are asking God to increase and bless and grow exponentially. There may be lots of waiting in this, but what is that thing? Would you even do this with me this week? So one of the things we're gonna step into is simply, I'm asking that every person would write a prayer this week and would you pray a mustard seed prayer every day during the month of September? It can be very personal. It's whatever it is that maybe you are longing after, hoping for, looking for God to bless and move. My hope is that we might see our waiting for the kingdom and God's ability to exponentially grow something very, very small into something very, very large. Take fruition here. May God continue to scatter the seeds of the gospel in our midst. May those seeds take root in good soil that produces massive crops. Thanks for checking in to the Serve Community Church podcast. If you're interested in more information on how to connect with our community, feel led to support us in any way you can or have any further questions, check us out online on social medias like Facebook or Instagram or at our website at servecc.org.